Hi, I'm Callie. I'm Clarissa. And I'm Isha. And we're Best Buds. Hi, and welcome to our first ever episode. Yay! Um, so, <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. And this is definitely a very, very heavy topic. It's not very conventional for, you know, the first episode of a college kind of lifestyle podcast to start on a topic like this. But since it's so pressing and so relevant in today's news, it's something that we can't ignore and we, we kind of have to talk about it. And we thought it was really important to talk about. So just a little disclaimer before we get started, because this is definitely very charged. Our perspectives and our personal experiences are limited, and we're also still trying to educate ourselves on this topic. We don't intend to offend anyone, and we are very open to any feedback or discussion, but we do think that it is important to speak up about these more politically charged topics, even though there may be controversy. Before we get started, we wanted to highlight some resources in case you wanted to explore this issue further or you wanted to get involved. Some places that you can donate are the NAACP Legal Defense Fund or the Bail Project. And some DC pro bono services for arrested protesters include Laws for Black Lives DC and the ACLU of DC. You can also sign petitions like the Justice for Breonna Taylor or the Justice for Floyd petitions. And a couple popular educational resources include 13th, which is a Netflix documentary, as well as The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And we'll have all of these resources, including a bunch more, um, listed in a document that we'll have included in our Instagram bios if you want to check it out. Okay, so let's get started talking about some of the recent cases of police brutality against Black people. I think, for me personally, I heard about Ahmed Arbery's case back in February when people were posting stuff on their Instagram stories, but the movement didn't really gain like the traction that we see right now mm -hmm. until George Floyd's death. But I think it's still really important to talk about some ca earlier cases of police brutality. So just for some context, 25-year-old Ahmed Aubrey was killed while running in a neighborhood outside of Brunswick, Georgia. And Gregory and his son, Travis McMichael, saw him jogging thought he was a man suspected of several local burglaries and claimed to have acted within Georgia's citizen arrest and self-defense statutes when Travis McMichael fatally shot Arbery. And later, both the father and son were charged with murder and aggravated assault, but this was after a lot of pushback from people in general, social media, yeah. And then later in March, Brianna Taylor, who was a 26-year-old EMT, died in her home after police forcibly entered her apartment on a no-knock warrant. It was actually the wrong house. The actual suspect that the police were pursuing had already been arrested. And her boyfriend fired at the police thinking that someone had broken into their home. And the police returned fire and Taylor was hit. Police claim that they identified themselves as officers before entering, although this fact is hotly disputed. And the officers involved have not been charged as of now. And then later, on May 25th, George Floyd died in police custody in Minneapolis. He was a 46-year-old African-American man who was accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill. Derek Chauvin, Alexander King, Thomas Lane, and Toe Tao responded to the call, and Chauvin, who was a white police officer, had handcuffed and pinned Floyd to the ground. Bystanders at the incident recorded a video of Chauvin using his knee to pin George Floyd's neck down, and Mr. Floyd is heard repeatedly saying, I can't breathe, in the video. Chauvin pressed his knee into George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes before he passed away. 
So this was the incident that really sparked today's Black Lives Matter movement. Over the week following George Floyd's death, protests erupted in Minneapolis as well as across the nation. There have been clashes with the police and incidents of looting, but plenty of peaceful protests as well. There has also been a really big rise both in news coverage and in social media activism. As of today, which is June 7th, all four police officers involved have been fired. Chauvin was charged with second-degree murder, and the other three officers were charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. So this is the Black Lives Matter movement that we're going to be discussing in this episode. And we didn't really want to stray too far into like the educational, more political side of things because it might be controversial. And also we're not experts and we definitely don't want to spread misinformation. So in this episode, we're mostly going to be talking about how we're personally engaging in the movement. So just to get started, there, there are a lot of different ways to contribute to this movement, whether it's financially through donations or fundraisers, signing petitions, writing emails, or calling or texting legislators, um, going to protests, or just educating yourself on these issues. So how have we been personally engaging? Isha? Yeah, so personally, I've been taking this time to donate money to various organizations. I've been sharing resources and trying to spread information about how other people can get involved in the movement, as well as sort of where I'm getting my information and stories from. I think that's important, especially with the like big spread of misinformation. To be informed properly is really important right now. Um, I've also been reading and watching things on my own. I think engaging with um, Black creatives and authors and pieces of art and writing, it's really important and it's really enlightened me personally um, as to how deeply rooted this like issue and movement is it, it goes way beyond like recent acts of police brutality and then also I've been working with my friend from high school um, he's a rising freshman at UMBC on a protest chatbot so we're working on a framework that connects medics to injured protesters more efficiently because there's this tenet of medical neutrality where medics should be considered neutral in times of civil unrest and protests so we don't think it's fair that protesters are being injured and then medics are not allowed to treat them. So we're trying to work on a framework to connect medics and protesters quickly and get them the help that they need. Oh, that's pretty cool. Would that be like an app or something? It's like an SMS chatbot. So you text mm -hmm. help to a number and you get connected to a medic through that. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. What, yeah. About you? what about you, Clarissa? So I've also been donating money and then reading and watching things to learn more, especially I think like news articles so I can get like a lot of different perspectives on things. Mm -hmm. I think that's important to me to see like the different sides of every issue and understand the nuance of everything. And then also just in general, like signing petitions. I wanted to go to the protests, but unfortunately because of the virus, I'm pretty limited. But I've also been having a lot of conversations with others to educate them and myself. Mm -hmm. I also did want to go to the protest, um, but yeah, there's six people in my family, and if I got sick, that wouldn't be good for any of us, mm. um, so I was unable to, to participate in that. I have also been donating a lot of money um, just because it's something that I'm financially able to do, and I know that a lot of my artist friends have been taking commissions in order to raise money or doing various sorts of fundraisers. So me and my friend Shane wanted to do something like that. So we started a fundraiser where we crochet little stuffed animals and then we're donating all the proceeds to various Black Lives Matter organizations. 
So we just started on that yesterday and I've been crocheting almost nonstop ever since. I've also been doing things like signing petition and texting numbers. And I think this, this movement in particular is really important to me because ever since high school, I've, kind of, I've been pretty interested in like the issue of mass incarceration particularly. And, you know, police brutality is very, very closely related to that. So I have been kind of delving back into this interest of mine, looking at some resources, some books that I haven't fully read through, and learning more about like the police as an institution beyond just prisons. So yeah. So in terms of social media activism, I think most of us see the most activity on Instagram. So what have we been seeing about how the conversation is moving through the social media platform? I think one thing I've been noticing, and I'm sure everyone's been noticing this, is the use of the Instagram story as like a means to convey Mm -hmm. information or spread awareness. I think posting something quickly on your Instagram story has like been a way for people to at least peripherally get involved if they can't directly donate or protest, for example, with Mm -hmm. um, the virus. But there's also been, with the rise of people using their Instagram stories as a way to, or as their own platform or soapbox for like talking about these things, there's been like, this distinction that people are trying to draw between like performative activism and then actually like doing something to further the movement. In terms of Instagram stories, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit. I feel Mm -hmm. like most people are reposting some sort of like infographics or posts that other people are making to try to spread some information. While I think this is definitely a really good way for people to get started, one of the issues that I do have is that it's just so hard to condense these very, very complicated issues into like these 10 pictures on Instagram, you know? So I feel like in some cases, the posts might be oversimplifying things. And I feel like even though it's really good that we're spreading information, I still feel like it's really important that we go beyond just scrolling through endless Instagram posts, trying to educate ourselves and go for some more substantial material, you know? Mm, Yeah, Yeah, right. But then going back to what Isha was talking about with performative activism, I know there were the trends with Blackout Tuesday, and then for a brief moment, there was a trend where it was like people were posting a black screen on their, on their story with the hashtag Black Lives Matter, and then tagging 10 of their friends in it to like keep the chain going. And I think that one really, that one in particular really bothered me because it was, it was very similar to the Instagram trends that started at the beginning of quarantine where, you know, people were like tagging each other and trying to draw stuff. And that was something that we did because we were bored, something for pure entertainment. And I thought the doing this for the Black Lives Matter movement really like reduced it down into something didn't didn't give it the full respect that it deserved, you know. Of course, I think all of these performative activism trends do have good intentions, but of course it's it's not really helpful in trying to educate others. It's not really doing anything, you know, besides showing your support, which in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think that's interesting how you bring up the point of like intention, because I was having this conversation with my family actually a few nights ago at dinner, and we were talking about The Good Place. I don't know if you guys have seen yes. it. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Oh, so I brought in- that up too. Yeah. So in like, okay, this is a big spoiler. So <laughs> okay, it's not a spoiler, but it is a spoiler. Okay. Yeah. It was a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. It was a spoiler. So if you, okay, disclaimer, this is a spoiler. If you're trying to watch the show, you can skip, skip past my voice. But um, in the show, they reveal that everyone who's in the good place, the good place in season one, it's actually the bad place that's 
made to look like the good place. And they explained that like Tahani, for example, she was sent to the bad place because like corrupt motives don't justify good deeds or good actions. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like, we say that performative activism, like posting black squares and like these long story chains, they're not like doing anything. But for the people who donate money or for the people who post something on their story, some informational infographic on their story because they want to be part of a trend or because inherently they don't want other people thinking that they're racist or they're bad. Like, even though those actions do further the movement and do good things for the movement, does that devalue them because their motivations were inherently like bad or corrupt? Just I mean, throwing that out there. The trend itself, trying to voice support for the movement isn't inherently a bad thing. It's just that they're taking up space with black squares instead of, you know, educational information or resources. And then Isha, you brought up a lot of good things about like this new culture that's emerged of social activism on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've noticed a lot of pressure to post because there's a lot of posts talking about how if you're staying silent, then you're being complicit in the racism. So I, I feel like there's definitely a lot of pressure to participate by posting on your own story as well. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I definitely feel that pressure. And like, as someone who was never really that active on social media, honestly, social media just is not my scene. I definitely feel that pressure to post. And like in not posting, sometimes I feel like the shame of like, oh, am I being racist? But like at the same time, I think it is important to note that there are a lot of ways to engage in the movement, not necessarily everyone has to do every possible engagement. And I think we should respect that people do engage in different ways. I think it's interesting because now we treat social media, especially like Instagram, as like an extension of our own voices. If we have an online presence, then these arguments that people are making that you have to use like your platform in order to spread awareness or do something good. Like if you have an online presence and you're not using it properly, like there's something bad about that. And I definitely see what Clarissa was saying with feeling pressured because you have that voice or presence in order to use that platform for good. But some people are donating silently. Some people are engaging in projects outside of like the realm of social media. If that's not Mm -hmm. your scene, I don't think you have to be pressured to voice support for the movement. Yeah, I feel like there's definitely a lot of pressure and I feel that myself as well. I was talking about this with Clarissa a few nights ago about how I used to, you know, this is something that I've always been relatively interested in. And I used to see these like fairly political posts, but back when everyone was posting like regular photos, you know, I felt very self-conscious about adding these posts to my story because I didn't want to come off as overly political or anything like that. Mm. I'm not really sure what it was, but now I I don't really think twice about it. I I see a post that I like and I click reshare. So I think for me personally, this is something that I've wanted to engage in. And now I just feel a lot more comfortable because of this new culture. On the other hand, while I personally feel like supported, there's definitely a lot of pressure. I remember like, I don't know, maybe the third night or after this thing erupted, I kind of like low-key had a breakdown because that day I had, you know, been engaging in the topic a lot. I had been talking with others. I participated in a Zoom panel to talk about like Asian American issues regarding the Black Lives Matter movement. And then by the end of the night, I was just so exhausted. That night, I did not want about this topic anymore. But then I felt a great deal of shame because I I was tired of it. 
I felt like by being tired of these things and not wanting to talk about it, I was being complicit in like the, the systematic racism, you know? And I think there is a distinction to draw there because this is definitely something I care very deeply about and I'm trying my best in these times. So I, I do think there's a difference between being completely silent and actively trying not to care about these things because it's, it, do, it doesn't pertain to you or something like that. And there's a distinction between that and trying to take care of yourself because, you know, these are very, very heavy topics and it can be very emotionally and very mentally draining. So I, I feel like it's really important to come out and tell people that, like, it's okay to take a break from these things. I went to sleep that night. I didn't check social media. I didn't check my Instagram for like the next morning. And then I came back a lot more energized and a lot more ready to tackle the issue once again. I think that's a really good point, especially because we're in this for the long haul. Like Mm -hmm. this systematic racism is not going to be dismantled in like (laughs) one week's worth of like media (laughs) activism and newsreels. Like this is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think that it's important to take care of yourself especially because these topics are heavy and we don't want burnout. I've seen a lot of posts recently about like the moment versus the movement and Mm -hmm. keeping the momentum going for like a sustained period of time until we see some tangible change. I feel like I've seen a lot more of those too. And I feel like I have been seeing fewer and fewer Instagram stories about these topics. I feel like we are kind of turning around the corner (laughs) in terms of like the (laughs) momentum behind the movement. Mm. But that's also something we should talk about, like trying not not just putting our efforts into this one movement that lasts for maybe a few weeks, but like you said, for the long haul. Right. And I think at first we were kind of powered by like this immediate indignation at what happened, Mm -hmm. these like powerful emotions. That was what was driving a lot of people. But like now that things are going on and life keeps going, we do have to find like more motivation to keep going. Mm -hmm. I feel like something that's really good about this particular movement is I think the public and as a whole is kind of reaching this new level of kind of enlightenment. I don't know if that's the right word, but I definitely feel like we're sharing a lot more information about like systematic racism just beyond just police brutality. We've been sharing a lot more information about like police and prison abolition as well. And I think that's something that's really good. I think after, you know, Ferguson happened in 2014, people were talking a lot about racial profiling and I guess more shallow topics, whereas now we're getting a lot deeper into these issues. And I don't know if that's personally just because I didn't care as much back then. I wasn't as active on social media back then. But I think now I'm definitely seeing a lot more depth to this issue, which I think is good. It gives us a deeper understanding and more motivation on how to move forward and how to continue the momentum that we have now. A few nights ago, I was like, I was thinking about everything that was going on. And then I remembered like, I had to submit a spreadsheet for like my lab. And in that moment, like it just, all the stuff I I was doing before the movement sort of erupted on social media, it just seemed like so paltry and like Mm -hmm. insignificant. And like with, with what Clarissa said, that a lot of our motivations for getting involved in a movement like this were charged by like these very powerful emotions initially. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about integrating like Black Lives Matter and these important topics that people are bringing up now into our everyday lives so that we don't have this distinction between like a big movement and then what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Like this should be something we think about. Yeah, this should be something that we we integrate into our normal lives and think about on a a daily basis. So Mm -hmm. yeah. So what do you guys think about cancel culture? (laughs) 
Yeah, so going back to what you were talking about, like the <laughs> pressure, there's definitely some toxicity to this to this new social activism culture. I've seen some posts going around that are like, if you don't agree with my posts, unfollow me. Or like, if I don't see you posting anything, I'm unfollowing you. And I, I just think that's very counterproductive, this whole like, like you said, like cancel culture, because we're trying to educate people. We shouldn't be like disowning other people who either may not be edu- as educated as we are or who have different opinions. Because a lot of the times it does just come down to opinion and perspectives. And I think it's more important to engage in discussions on these issues rather than cutting them out of your life, you know? Yeah, right. Because I feel like a respectful conversation can go a lot further than saying like, oh, you're just a racist. Leave me alone. I'm not talking to you anymore. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times these offensive opinions are rooted in ignorance. And having someone who takes the time to talk to them about this could really make a much bigger difference than trying to punish them. Mm -hmm. But I think with this, this pressure, I've also felt it as well. And there have been times where I wanted to like share my own opinions and my own thoughts, but I was too scared to in case I said something that like wasn't correct. And I didn't want people to like come after me or attack me. So I I felt it was safer to kind of just be reposting other people's instead of posting my own thoughts. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like people have also used this as an opportunity to like prove to people in their following that they're like more politically Mm -hmm. woke than other people and like get with it. Like this is what you should be thinking about. And like in a very toxic way, like telling people that they should be like actively thinking about these issues is like important, but then you have people taking it to an, to an extreme where Mm -hmm. they're like, one of my friends actually posted something about this on their story that this isn't an opportunity to prove to anyone that you're like doing a great job. This is something that you have to like internalize and really think about for yourself. And I thought that was interesting, especially in the context of like cancel culture. So then that kind of goes back to like the question of intentions and performative activism. Like if people are being pressured into caring about these things, do they really care? Or like, is this the best way to go about getting people to learn more about these topics and to care about these things? I think with performative activism also is you make the conversation about you. You make it like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm a good person. This is about like me proving that I'm not a racist, but you don't make it about the movement and what's actually important. Yeah, I had a friend who actually waited a while before she posted anything on social media and she was like, I wanted to educate myself and like really understand all aspects of the issue Mm -hmm. so that when I come to the movement, like I can contribute in a way that's productive. And I I, I don't want to discount people who might be doing that outside of social media. Like Clarissa said, sometimes that's not their scene and they might be quietly educating themselves, but they're interested in learning. And I think that's that personal motivation, even if it's not expressed outrightly on social media, is really important to acknowledge as well. There's also the question of whether using social media is effective, because I know that I feel like this region, we're all fairly liberal. We all have fairly similar ideas, especially within our age group. Even if we're posting all, all of these thoughts and all of these opinions on social media, like who is our audience? Do they already agree with us or are we are we actually contributing to education and like information? Yeah, sometimes I feel like my conversations with like, like the conversations I've had with some of my friends about this stuff, it's like, it feels like one big statement of agreement. Mm -hmm. We talk for like 
a few hours and then at the end we're like yeah so basically we agree on everything that's going on <laughs> and we're like well how productive is that like what someone I saw on social media actually posted instead of me canceling people who disagree with me like I invite you to swipe up like DM me and we can have a conversation about this and mm-hmm. I thought I th- thought that was really admirable I think Clarissa and I were talking about this a few nights ago about yeah how like a lot of our friends feel the same way about these kinds of things but I think that's a good transition into our next topic because we were talking about having (laughs) conversations with our parents and how they tend to disagree with us and it's weird having these conversations with someone who doesn't agree with you it kind of puts you out of your comfort zone and you really have to reevaluate your own thoughts and make sure I think double checking yourself as well so in terms of that some background about our parents we're all second generation immigrants and our parents came from china for me and clarissa and india for isha so Mm -hmm. i feel like personally i have a very different perspective on these things from my parents what about you guys yeah i definitely feel that as well i don't think my perspective is like drastically different but there are some like nuances that reading about these issues has like brought my attention to but like my parents don't really like see those nuances and it's like it's about like the little things that we have discussions and disagreements about for the most part I think they're like definitely supportive of the movement but there there are pockets of disagreement I would say so I know that this is personally the first time I've had so many in-depth conversations with my parents about it like pretty much every day during dinner we will just like sit around after after dinner for like an hour talking about these things mm. um and I think it's really good because I especially my mom I don't think she's very politically aware of things that are happening so I think it's really good that she's starting a lot of these conversations and trying to educate herself yeah right like I feel like my parents are more willing to listen than they have been in the past I think it's really good that now like my mom came to me and was like I really want to learn more about this movement and what other people think and I think this movement in this sense is reaching more people than it has in the past and having people like my parents who traditionally haven't been that politically active reach out and want to learn more so Isha you kind of talked about like some of the nuances that you and your parents disagree on where do these differences come from do you think I think a lot of it, so I read this article about Asian American complicity, and Mm -hmm. they talked a lot about, like, the first generation experience of coming to this country, and I think that, like, a lot of first generation immigrants share this, like, conception of, yeah, we came to this country, like, we struggled, and they did, they struggled, Mm -hmm. like, they came here with nothing, they struggled, to get to where they are now and I think a lot of them had carried this idea of like this very like idealistic or perfect like meritocracy where Mm -hmm. America is this place where if you work hard enough you can get what you want or get what you deserve that's like that's the mentality that a lot of people come to this country with Mm -hmm. like especially in my parents generation and I feel like that's discounting a lot of like the systematic barriers that people who are originally in this country face because a perfect meritocracy exists in a vacuum and to say that like you can discount everything that's systematically wrong with this country and just say that there's this relationship between hard work and success I don't think Mm -hmm. that's like exactly true and I think 
it takes these conversations to teach them about like why that mentality is overly idealistic yeah I definitely feel that as well like my parents definitely subscribe to this whole American dream narrative and like like you said it's it's true that they came here not with a lot not with a lot of money or resources Um, they barely knew anybody and they worked really hard to get to where they are today and like I don't know I've personally grown up very privileged and very sheltered And I know that my parents have gone through a lot to get us to this state. But like you said, I think my parents focus a lot more on their struggles when they first immigrated here. And then maybe I know that some Asian parents see it as like a zero sum game, like a kind of game of who suffered more and trying to make their suffering just as legitimate as African-American suffering. But I don't think that comparison is fair at all, just because the backgrounds and the histories of these two groups are so different. And that assumption of comparability, like the assumption that these two groups can be compared is the very basis of the model minority myth. I think I recognize the African-American struggle a lot more than my parents do, maybe because I was educated in this country and I know more about like the systems and the history behind it. Whereas my parents, I think, focus more on their own struggles. Yeah, I definitely feel like you know, like the struggle between seeing things like on an individual level versus a systemic level. Mm-hmm. Even with like George Floyd, I mean, my parents definitely saw it as a horrific incident, but they were seeing it as this was one bad police officer and it was a bad situation that it happened in. And I feel like they struggle more to see these systemic patterns, like of how they are privileged. Because like you said, I feel like it's almost like they see if one person is less privileged than they are, it like somehow discounts all the suffering that they went through. And I think that's not really the right way to think about it because of course they worked hard and of course they earned where they are today, but they also have to acknowledge that other people are struggling more than they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in terms of that, like I've definitely tried to explain the systematic barriers that African-Americans face to my parents. Like I've told them about mass incarceration and qualified immunity and things like that. And they definitely like agree that these systems aren't great and need to change. And they agree that like, that the black community deserves some outside help. But one thing that really struck me was that they said, but they should also be helping themselves. You know, they should be telling their kids not to do drugs and not to get involved in gangs. And that frustrated me because again, there are so many different factors that go into these things. And it's oftentimes from what I've seen and what I've read, it's not really an individual choice. So I feel like I feel like they see me as blaming everyone but the African Americans, but the black community. Um, they see me blaming all these different systems and all these different police officers and all these different things. Um, and they they argue that the black community should take some level of individual responsibility. And like while that is true that you know we should all be taking responsibility for our lives, but there are still so many systems and institutions that affect people's lives that, you know, they can't change. And I think that the first generation immigrants perspective on that is interesting to consider because we acknowledge the successes of the American system. Like our parents rode the wave of the Immigration Act of 1965. Like they came Mm -hmm. to this country because America was like the land of the free and had Mm -hmm. all these opportunities. And we, we adopted those successes as our own when we came to this mm-hmm. country, but like they have to understand and that in addition to acknowledging that 
they own these successes, that they have to own these failures as well and understand mm -hmm. that like America has flaws and it ha there are these like systematic prejudices that exist. And in order to accept that you came to this country to reap the opportunities, there were a bunch of people who were disadvantaged who didn't see those opportunities as well. So I think it's a matter of like them as immigrants we're in this country now. We have to acknowledge both like America's failures and successes. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that, you know, when we talk, we focus a lot on, oh, our parents don't understand our point of view. But I think we also should think about how there are like a lot of ways that we don't understand what they're yeah, coming from. Yeah, for like, sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Recently on Chinese social media, it's like someone released a letter in response to the Black Lives Matter movement in response to like our generation's outrage. It basically said, oh, like you think your parents didn't work hard and like, they're so privileged, but like we did work hard. We came here with nothing. You guys as sheltered children, you don't understand what we went through. And because of that, you're discounting all of our hard work as being privileged. Mm -hmm. I think that privilege is a very heavy word, especially for these Asian American parents. Like you said, like they did struggle and Asian Americans did face a long history of discrimination within the United States. But I think it's important to realize that like, even though we started from very little, we still got very far because we had opportunities and we didn't face some of these systematic barriers like the Black community does. And I feel like it's important to define privilege. And I don't know the definition myself, but I think that we think of it systematically, again, and the parents think of it maybe more individually. Like, they didn't come with a lot, therefore they weren't privileged. Whereas I see it like, they didn't come with a lot, yes, but they weren't blocked from jobs because of their skin color or something like that, you know? And I think, like, in response to, like, conversations that I have with my parents, I think I've been trying to learn to, to not dismiss everything that they're saying, mm -hmm. to, like, be a better listener, because I think definitely in the past, like, I've, I'm one to quickly, like, rebuke and, like... Mm -hmm. I don't take the time to actually listen to what they're saying. And I think that's what stopped us from having very productive conversations about this in the past. I think that in order to have like a productive conversation with your parents, like you have to be willing to listen to what they're saying as well, because there's some value that comes from both sides mm -hmm. and understanding both sides. I can definitely relate to that. I feel like in the recent conversations I've been having with my parents, I, I don't know. I still feel like I'm holding very strong in my ground and in my beliefs, but sometimes they do bring up really good points. And I kind of have to, like I said before, I, I kind of have to reevaluate and rethink my beliefs. But I feel like usually, I don't know, this is very biased to say, but I feel like usually in the end, their disagreements only make me even stronger in my beliefs. But then again, like you said, maybe I'm just not actively listening enough and not, not trying to understand, trying listening in order to review. So maybe that, that is something I do have to change. Yeah, I always criticize people on the other side for like, they never even wanted to change their opinion in the first place. So like, why am I having this conversation? <laughs> but like, if I don't, if I don't actively do the things that I condemn them for, like, mm -hmm. that makes me a hypocrite. So I think like reevaluating where I stand in these conversations and how I like, react in these conversations is also really important. Mm, that's a really good point. Right. Like we want to create an open dialogue of both sides being willing and open to share these ideas. And I feel like that's going to be the thing that most helps change minds and educate people and makes us stronger overall. And 
going back, I remember that Clarissa said that your mom like was very willing to learn and came to you to ask for help with that. Isha, what about you? Have your parents been like, do you, do you feel like your parents have been actively willing to listen and to learn? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, we had a lot of conversations about this earlier, but then I, I thought that instead of like barking at them about these issues, I would start sending them like readings and mm-hmm. videos. And like, personally, I think instead of someone like actively like yelling at you to change your opinion, if you like sit with these resources yourself and like critically consider where you stand, I think that's real, like that's been really effective for me in terms of like understanding the logic behind these arguments and if you can change your own opinion that's way more effective than someone like forcing you to change it mm-hmm. so i think that that's what i've seen as like the most effective in interacting with my parents and other people who may have disagreed with me yeah i think i should probably <laughs> maybe i could try sending videos to my parents because i have tried sending articles like this isn't this isn't black lives matter related it was about COVID, but I wrote like this five page reflection. And it was something that I was very proud of writing. Um, So I sent it to my mom and she missed the point completely. Um, And I was, I was, I was like kind of disappointed about that. Um, But the next day, like I came downstairs and she was like, wow, your essay was very long. And I was like, yeah, but it was good. And she was like, very long I wouldn't have been able to write that myself and I was like can you you read it (laughs) like okay I don't mean to diss my mom but I just feel like like English isn't her first language and I don't think she's very comfortable reading like very complicated very long articles but like you said maybe maybe videos a better option but I feel like for me I don't know if my dad is like willing to change his opinions because he's like he he does educate himself he reads the news and he doesn't chime into these conversations a lot except to refute me and my sister on the other hand I think my mom is more open-minded and more willing to listen to what we have to say I remember this one particular conversation that stood out to me because my mom said something that objectively was like not okay and I called her out and I was like, this isn't a personal attack, but I'm just going to say that what she said was quite racist. And both she and my dad kind of exploded at that. And they were like, you can't say that a person is racist just because of one opinion or one thought that they have. And I feel like that's a very important thing because since we're talking about such a loaded topic, I think it's really important to acknowledge that everyone has this internalized sense of racism. Like we've grown up in a very whitewashed world where like you know we're ruled by white supremacy in pretty much every institution and that we've all definitely internalized a lot of that so I think my parents took it a lot more personally than I intended so I tried to talk to them about it and I tried to say like everyone has some form of racism internalized but we need to acknowledge it and we need to change it and it's not like it shouldn't be a personal attack when someone says that something you said was racist like that doesn't mean you're a racist person. And that, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. And I read some articles on this too, where a lot of white people or pr- people who are more privileged try to say things like, I'm not racist, because they see racism as an act done intentionally by bad people. Like, so they take it very personally if you say that something was racist, um, because they feel like you're attacking them as a person rather than some of the internalized thoughts that they may have. Right, I saw a post yesterday that was like so many white people want to say i'm one of the good guys but the Mm -hmm. thing is these are very internalized things like you said 
And it's not necessarily that like you are like a racist, like you're either a racist or you're not a racist. I don't think it's that clear mm-hmm, cut. Like sure. you have racist actions and you have racist thoughts, but as long as you take the time to correct these and to acknowledge them for what they are, I think you're still moving in a good direction. And that's the important thing. Mm-hmm. And that definitely goes back to cancel culture. Like if somebody says something that maybe is racist or maybe it's just something you disagree with, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're like inherently a bad person. And again, like we shouldn't, I don't think that we should be canceling them or like cutting them out of our lives. We should be trying to talk to them and trying to educate them on these kinds of things. Okay, this is a somewhat unrelated topic, but I was interested in what you guys have to say on like, I guess the Asian American propensity for silence. Because when my mom heard that we were having a podcast talking about race, her first instinct was be careful with what you say. You don't want to get in trouble. And I feel like it feeds into the model minority narrative of like, keep your head down, work hard, Mm -hmm. don't offend anyone, and then you'll just get to where you need to be. And I think that's like what makes it more important for us to talk about it because as a whole, Asian Americans have been silent for a long time. Mm -hmm. For sure. And like, like I was telling you before, like the, the model minority myth came from the 1960s. It came from the civil rights movement where African Americans in the black community were speaking out for their rights, speaking out after such a long history of oppression. And that was the moment when the government chose to kind of put us on a pedestal as the model minority. And it was kind of to condemn the civil rights movement, kind of being like, if Asian Americans can be quiet and work hard and get to success, then why can't you, right? So that's that's kind of like the basis behind the model minority myth. And that definitely, I, I think, does feed into some of this fear that we have in speaking out because our privilege and like the proximity to whiteness comes from our silence. I don't think it's very common for Asian Americans, especially in the older generations, I think, to speak up on the, these things. I think that our generation is, is more active in political news. I was looking at this because I read this a few days ago, but I, I just pulled it up on my computer. And Martin Luther King Jr. actually wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail about the white moderate and mm-hmm. how oftentimes shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than like absolute misunderstanding from people of like intentional ill will. So mm-hmm. staying like silent on these issues, it not only makes us like complicit, but it lumps us in with people who are like yeah I agree with what people are doing right now but like I'm personally not gonna do anything about it and then there are like two ways to look at it where one way it's like there's some people have like a sense of inefficacy where it's like I can't really do anything about it this doesn't really concern me I don't really even know where to start but then other people like Clarissa said who are like let me keep my head down and because I'm too scared of saying something in case it's wrong or in case it's racist And I think that having a conversation, making mistakes in this conversation, maybe saying something that's not right, it only helps you learn and grow and like it expands the conversation. And I think that's like something that's really important to to do. And I think especially for Asian Americans, we definitely have to understand our place in America and how we fit in. Because I definitely see a lot of America as a very black and white racial binary, you know? And for a long time, I've kind of questioned where we fit in as Asian Americans. And as I'm learning more about us and about our history, there's a lot to do with the model minority myth. We have this proximity to whiteness and some privilege that comes from it, but it's not, it's not permanent and it's not substantive. Like we saw in the coronavirus pandemic, 
that the model minority myth and this kind of idealization can turn into back into yellow peril and forever foreigner these different concepts very very quickly so i really think that it's important for us to understand our own history and to understand how we fit in in order to stand in solidarity with the black community because these issues even though they might not be affecting us directly do affect us because it's about the whole system like i said before I, i've seen a lot of posts about solidarity and like um, asians for black lives and things like that and i think that it's good that the general public i think is starting to engage in these kinds of conversations mm -hmm. It's really empowering to see so many Asian Americans being politically active because, mm -hmm. like I mentioned, traditionally, like at least my parents were not very politically active. And it was very much like, we'll mind our own business and it will be fine. But I think especially with our generation, seeing all these young Asian Americans out there, like politically active, fighting for all these rights, I think that's really important. And I think that is hopefully a change that we'll keep in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like during the Maryland primaries on June 2nd, like, it was, there was something so, like, warm and, like, nice driving to the ballot place with my, my dad and my sister, and we had all mm -hmm. four of our absentee ballots, and we were, like, talking about these issues that we had just voted on in the ballot, and we were, like, submitting our ballots together, like, there was something that felt so unifying about that, and it made me think that, like, if we continue this momentum, like this is something that could turn out to be really good and we can bring about some really good change. And I think it was nice to see that like, yeah, my parents voted and they were on board with that. Yeah, and I, I saw this one post a few times that was like, 2020, this year kind of sucks. There has been a lot <laughs> going on. But what if 2020 is the year we've been waiting for? You know, what if it's the year to push us out of our comfort zone and to force us to learn and to grow. I think that's a really good way of putting it. To grow? <laughs> to grow. Uh, okay, now wow. we can that plus. <laughs> I think love how we tie yes. things. Wow. I think that was a good wrap to the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> a good wrap, like a lettuce wrap. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, we prefaced this. We were going to include plants. Lots of plants. So. <laughs> okay, well, thank you guys for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed. Let us know what you think. Let uh, us. Everyone's gonna. Oh my God. Let us. Okay. I don't know if anyone's gonna listen to this, but I really enjoyed having this conversation with you guys. So. Yeah, yeah, this is good. Love you. Love you guys. Really? <laughs> Thanks again for listening. We'd like to extend a special thanks to Sydney Sun, who designed our logo. As you can see from our logo, she's a super talented artist, so if you have time, make sure to check out some of her work. See you soon for episode two. Bye! <laughs>